I'm constantly amazed at the integrity and the greatness of God's word. It is just so astounding to me that the more and more and more and more as I work it again and again and again, how much there is in God's word and what a blessing that word is. Tonight, we're going to start into the second chapter of Thessalonians. Again, I spent hours working this, and I still feel like I did not do a very good job on it. But as I worked this word again in Thessalonians, I just, as I said, constantly amazed at the great truths that are here. I'm real grateful for the sharing of it. The first word in chapter 2 is the word for, and I knew this word for couldn't tie in with the wrath to come of the verse preceding it, but it does tie in to the ninth verse of the previous chapter. And in the ninth verse of chapter 1, for they themselves report of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. That's one item. Number two and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, just elaborate on the first part of chapter 1, verse 9, the entering in that they had among the Thessalonians. And verses 13 to 16 of chapter 2, elaborate how the people turn from idols to the one and only true God. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. In nine you had the entering in we had unto you. And here he states that they know our entrance unto you, that it was not in vain. You know, it wasn't just spinning your wheels. This no is real interesting in this portion because it's used in verse 1. Brethren, no, in verse 2, it's K-N-O-W. In verse 5, it's K-N-O-W. In verse 11, it's K-N-O-W. And this word no is not the word gnosko. It is that word that in my heart and mind is much more experiential. It's a, a knowing mentally, but it's in the inner part of an individual. I do not want you to misunderstand it, but it's in the sense of an intuitive type of knowing. It just gets more than head. You see, the unbelievers and those who didn't like the ministry that Paul had and Silas and who else? Barnabas was with him, wasn't he? Those people that didn't like the ministry of what happened in Thessalonica just did everything they could to blackball Paul. You know, they picked on his personal life, everything. And so God, by revelation, had him to write this back to the Thessalonians. And he addresses the brethren, the believers. And he said, look, no matter what the people say, you know our entrance in unto you. That when we were with you, what we did was not in vain. We got tremendous results. 
So no matter what the people say now when it's over with, just remember what happened. I use the same general essence at times when I tell our people, look, if you'll just remember what God did for you or who you were before you took the class on power for abundant living, you stay a little humble, a little grateful, a little thankful to God. The word but in verse 2, of course, sets in contrast. But even after that we had suffered before, it's a participle form and should be literally translated, but even having suffered before and shamefully entreated, as ye know, in Philippi, at is the E-N, Philippi, we were bold, and the word in is again the Greek word in, our God, or to speak unto you the gospel of God, and with is the preposition in, much contention. Translate this en at, in, with, same verse. Shamefully entreated, as ye know. If you take a look at Acts 16, verse 37, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned being Romans, and have cast us into prison. Verse 38, and the sergeant told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. They were shamefully entreated, shamefully treated. They were Romans and should never have been treated that way. And the shameful entreating was they scourged them. This was at Philippi. Even though they had been shamefully entreated there, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with or in much contention. This gospel of God is the administration of the mystery. They were bold, bold, even though they had been scourged in Philippi, they came to the Thessalonians, to Thessalonia, and they were bold to speak the gospel of God, which is the mystery, in much contention. This much contention, the word contention, is the word that is used when they did the Olympic Games, and they were competing, a lot of athletes competing. And as I see this verse, they spake unto you the gospel of God in much contention. There was a lot of opposition to the word. A lot of people that were playing games. That's why the boldness has to be there. There were many people there that contended against it and said, look, Paul, you're crazy and a lunatic. You know, after all, we studied this, we've done this. That's where the contention came in. For our exhortation, verse 3, was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. The thing that they were accusing Paul of is that he was deceitful and that he was doing this thing from a impure action, uncleanness, and that he was really tricky, sly, and he reminds the brethren that the exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. The word exhortation basically is for our calling aside. Calling aside was not of deceit, not of half-truths that would delude the people, nor of uncleanness. See, it wasn't of deceit or uncleanness, nor of guile. 
The uncleanness means spiritually impure. What they were simply saying in the criticism was, look, Paul, this is not pure ritual doctrine, nor in guile. The word guile literally is baited for a tricky catch, for his calling people aside was not to present half-truths that would delude them, nor was it spiritually impure, and he wasn't baiting them to trick them into another religious trip. But in contrast, verse 4, as we were allowed of God to be entrusted with, that's the Greek form, to be entrusted with the gospel, which is called the gospel of God in verse 2, which is the administration of the mystery. Even so we speak, not as pleasing what? Men, but God who trieth our hearts. See, the accusation about trying to deceive people was just a bunch of baloney because that gospel that he was entrusted with, he spoke not to please men, but God who proves people's hearts. Verse 5, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. We didn't use flattering words. Nor a cloak. The cloak is a pretense. What they were accusing Paul of, the unbelievers, was that he was doing this for his self that he was indicating he was so spiritually interested in the people, but really he was interested in himself. That's covetousness here, the word. He didn't use flattering words, as you know, nor a pretense of covetousness. What they were saying was that this fellow Paul, he says, well, look, I have greater light on God's word than any of the rest of you. And he's saying, well, I got the only right interpretation. That's this word covetousness. So I want to tell you, I never said that. I didn't have any pretense of indicating that I had more than anyone else or the only right interpretation. He ends up, God is witness. Goes right back to the bar of God. Is there any question about it? Verse 6, Nor of men sought we what? Glory. Neither of you nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Here's another tremendous verse. Nor a men sought we glory. What men? Neither of you. What you? Nor yet of others. What others? Three different categories in here. He didn't use the flattering words or the pretense of men. Those men in that area that were very influential. Or of you, the brethren. The others have to be other men of God. We did not seek glory of you or of others, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. The text 
I think literally should read when we might have used the authority of our position. Paul was always very careful in his walk never to use his position or the authority that that position would require or should require and holding this over the heads of people. And yet we all know the labor is worthy of his hire. That's all I know about the men in verse 6 or the you or the others. I thought again as I worked the word when the critics took a crack at Paul, I was thinking of people throwing torches, fires at a man like Paul. It only lights up the grandeur of the tremendous man he really was. He didn't seek men's glory. He didn't seek the glory of those people there, nor yet of other apostles or prophets, whatever they may have been. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. Perhaps I ought to just refresh your memory to tell you that all through the church epistles, whenever the local believer group grew big enough that the abundant sharing was there, Paul lived off of it when there were enough believers. And when there were not enough believers where he could handle it that way, then he still made his saddles, did everything else necessary. In other words, he lived off of the abundant sharing of the believers when there were enough believers. And here in this particular verse now, he says, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. First of all, the nurse didn't have the children. So I knew we had to work that. And an interesting thing, of course, is this whole great section through here, but I have a piece of work here that is on the Thessalonian epistles and I think I'll just read you a section here that deals with this verse and if you are not as confused as I am when I finish, well, I pray for each other. But this is the kind of stuff I'm going to read you now that men come up with that when you finally finish with it, you really don't know whether you're right or whether you're wrong or indifferent. This we were gentle in the midst of you succinctly depicts the nature of their conduct at Thessalonica. The words at once confront us with what Morris well calls a first-class textual problem. Instead of gentle, E-P-I-O-I, many manuscripts read Babes, N-E-P-I-O-I. Since the preceding word, E-G-E-N-E-T-H-E-M-E-N, -E 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 ends with the letter N, it is easy to see how these two readings, differing only by the absence or presence of an initial N, may have arisen. If Epioi was the original reading, then N-E-P-I-O-I may be accounted for as due to some scribe's accidental repetition of the N of the preceding word. If N-E-P-I-O-I -I was the original, 
the second N may have been omitted by an oversight, that either reading was produced by a deliberate change on the part of a scribe is possible, but less probable. In favor of the reading babes, N-E-P-I-O-I, is the fact that it is supported by the weight and diversity of the manuscript evidence, as well as a wide variety of versions and church fathers. This reading has won the support of many scholars. In their Greek text, Westcott and Hort use it without even indicating the alternative reading in the margin. Lati, L-A-T-T-E-Y, quite literally renders, quote, but we became babes in the midst of you, end of quote. <laughs> While Williams has, quote, instead we were little children among you, end of quote. Way paraphrases, quote, oh no, but I was unassuming like one of yourselves, end of quote. Several considerations are urged in support of this striking reading. It is held that after the noun apostles, just before the noun babes is more likely than an adjective. Also that babes fits it better with in the midst of you immediately after. It is pointed out that the word for babes occurs 14 times elsewhere in the New Testament, 10 times in Paul's writings, while gentle occurs only once. Thus, N-E-P-I-O-I, babes, is held to be the more characteristic of Paul. Lightfoot contends that the sudden switching in metaphor from babes to a nurse is quite in Paul's manner since, as usual, he does not hesitate to mix his metaphors, that his image should cut clean. It is here that this reading fits in with the preceding verse where Paul defends himself not against the charge of harshness but of self-seeking. Westcott and Hort defend their reading babes with the remark that, quote, the change from the bold image to the tame adjective is characteristics of the difference between St. Paul and the Syrian revisers. If babes is accepted as the original reading, the term must be understood as setting forth the absence of an authoritarian attitude that the missionaries descended to the level of their spiritually immature children, becoming children among children. Thus Augustine spoke of it as baby language to those who are still babes in the faith. Bicknell supports the reading with the remark, quote, the idea is the condescension of the true Christian pastor who is willing to put himself on the level of others, which is the essence of sympathy, end of quote. But significant arguments are advanced in favor of the reading gentle. In the immediate context, gentle is certainly the most appropriate antithesis to Paul's disclaimer concerning his apostolic authority and dignity. This reading also forms the proper contrast to the slanders which Paul repudiates in verses 5 and 6. For Paul to speak of the writers in the same sentence as babes and a nursing mother is confusion. Babes is incongruous with nurse for it exactly reverses the figure. Admittedly, Paul is capable of changing his figures rapidly, 
but he avoids inconsistency. While the juxtaposition of babes and a nursing mother forms a jarring description of the writers, the term gentle is in full harmony with the maternal relationship with follows. In 2 Timothy 2.24, gentleness is posited as a mark of the true pastor. The term babes does not really express the thought of condescension claimed for it here. Paul's use of the term elsewhere rather carries the uncomplimentary connotation of spiritual immaturity. Certainly the writers are not here pointing out their own immaturity while with the Thessalonians. It should be noted that Paul never applies the term babe to himself, but rather to his converts who have not yet matured. The term babes is certainly more common in Paul's writing than the adjective gentle, yet that fact does not prove that he wrote babes here. It may rather be argued that the known habit of scribes to change an unfamiliar word into a familiar word points rather to the unfamiliar adjective as the original reading here. In 2 Timothy 2.24, the correct reading is certainly E-P-I-O-I, gentle. Yet Metzger points out that more than one scribe succumbed to the temptation to substitute the more familiar word, N-E-P-I-O-I, babes, for the true text, E-P-I-O-I. It is true that the preponderance of the manuscript evidence is for N-E-P-I-O-I, babes, which once introduced into the text would be favored by subsequent scribes since it can be interpreted to make good sense. Adani thinks that this is an instance of how the best manuscripts may sometimes be demonstrably wrong. Metzger, who makes a tentative decision in favor of EPIOI, sanctions the dictum of Daniel Mace that no manuscript is so old as common sense. <laughs> With the notable exception of Westcott and Hort, EPIOI generally is favored by most modern editors of the Greek text. It is also the reading accepted by the majority of commentators and modern English versions. Admittedly, the reading remains doubtful, but we accept this as more probably the original. And then he keeps going on for a couple of other pages. You see, that's the kind of confusion you run into. You can read all that stuff, and when you're all through, your head's still going in circles, and you still don't know anything about God's Word. In a foundational class, I teach you that the individual word has to fit with the rest of the words, right? And all those other things. If you apply those principles here, you never get so confused. He has just told us in verse 6 that he had the authority, the burdensome. He had that authority. He could have set forth his authority. But the opposite of setting forth a man's authority would never be a babe. A little baby, the opposite of that authority would have to be sweetness, tenderness, love, and therefore just by sheer context, you'd have to know it has to be gentle. Golly, why they can get in such fantastic hallelujah confusion. And that's just the way this stuff always goes. 
They just never come to the simplicity and the integrity and the accuracy of the greatness of that word. Ever learning, never able. I didn't have time to check all the Aramaic stuff. I wish I knew Aramaic as well as I knew Greek. And if there were more concordances and analytical stuff to work at. But you know good and well that a nurse, it's not her children. I don't know what's lost here, but I know the essence is we were gentle among you even as a nursing mother cherishes her children. That makes sense. You know, the nurse isn't out there letting the baby suck on her, generally speaking. It's the mother that gives the child suck. The comparison is absolutely beautiful. They didn't use flattering words, no pretense of covetousness. God was their witness, nor of men sought they glory, neither of the people, nor yet of any others, even though they had the authority as an apostle, but they were tender. He was tender. He was gentle, loving, understanding, even as a nursing mother who cherishes her children. The word cherishes was real interesting to me. It's the same word that's used like a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. Under the wings is this word cherishing. And I see the beauty of this as a mother takes her child and holds it to her breast real tenderly, puts her arm around it. You know, I get the picture of this thing like, I see the old mother hen with her feathers out, you know, her wings out, and the little old chicks underneath. Have you seen hens do that? How she just takes her wings and pulls old little old chicks real close. That's the tenderness, the gentleness with which they worked with the people in Thessalonica. Even as a nursing mother cherishes, draws her child close to her breast, and gives it suck and holds it tenderly. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. And verse 8 corroborates this because the words being affectionately desirous of you. Affectionately desirous is a motherly term where a mother is affectionately desirous of her child. She just tenderly brings it in and she holds it so beautifully, so close, so warmly. Boy, look at the gentleness of the outreach of God's word among those Gentiles. Man, oh man. What a comparison. What an illustration. Gentle, like a nursing mother who just covers her child, cherishes her children and being affectionately desirous. No woman would be as affectionately desirous of any other baby as she would of her own. That's this word, affectionately desirous. It's a real motherly term. It's in that essence that this affectionately desirous of you. That's why the rest of verse 8 says, we were willing to have imparted unto you 
not the gospel of God only, the mystery, but also our own souls. We'd have given our own lives because you were dear or beloved unto us. It's the same root word as that word beloved, where it says Jesus Christ was beloved of God, I think it is. What God said of Christ, this is my beloved son, affectionately desired, dear, beloved of us, just like God loved Christ. Well, that's quite a twig, isn't it? Tremendous branch, gentle, like a nursing mother, affectionately desirous, dear, willing to have imparted not only the mystery, not only you want to teach them the word, but you'd give your own life for them, our own souls. Really something. For ye remember, brethren, verse 9, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. I think that's the third time this gospel of God comes up, doesn't it? He talked about the entrance in in verse 1, suffering shamefully that they had endured at Philippi in 2. And here we go to remembering brethren, our labor and travail. The word labor is really untiring effort. Well, he has just told us in the previous verse, they were willing to have imparted not the gospel of God only, but also our own what? Souls. The word travail is literally driving ourselves to weariness. Plain language, working our fanny off. Holding forth the word. You remember, brethren, our untiring effort driving ourselves even to the point of weariness for laboring, working, night and what? Day. Night and day. He made his saddles, whatever he was engaged in, night and day. In other words, he worked at his job to get his money, then he'd hold forth the word in an untiring effort driving himself even to where he was just dog-tired. Why? Because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. The word chargeable literally is to put no weight or responsibility on you. As I said, Paul never lived off of the people. He didn't go out and say, look, I'm an apostle. I've got the gospel, the word. You give a listen, take an offering for himself. No, no, no. He lived off of the believers' abundant sharing when there were enough believers to abundantly share. And you have other documentation in the word to substantiate that. He just wouldn't be chargeable to any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of what? There it is again. My goodness. This word preached is the word proclaimed, the word caruso. 
I'd like to take that word Caruso and put a thought in your mind and keep checking it as you go along through the word in the years to come. The word Caruso, if I understand the usage of this, it's like the herald who has that big old long trumpet who announces the coming event. I think in Mohammedanism, it's still the fellow that gets that big long trumpet out and he calls them to the hours of prayer. That instrument, that's Caruso. You know, beep, 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 beep. And they all come out. That's Caruso. Always think of it in the form of the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> or a horse race. They come out and they blow the horn. Then the horses come out and they run the race. The word Caruso with my understanding of the word, I believe, is more like witnessing. In other words, just telling it as it is, just giving the greatness of it rather than teaching it in detail. It's like as if you went in and you, you witnessed to what God did for you. That's Caruso. Now, when you start breaking down that witness into different categories, that's teaching. And that's a different word than Caruso. We preached unto you the gospel of God. You see, if you go into a new area to get people saved, like here in Thessalonica, they came in to bring the greatness of this mystery and the new birth. You don't teach the detail of it. You just witness to the truth of it and get people born again of God's spirit. Then as they mature, as they grow up, then you start teaching them. It's just like a baby. You first got to have the birth to have the baby. And then you give it milk, you nurture it, you take good care of it, gentle with it. Then as it gets older, you teach it to say mama and papa and then you teach it to speak. That second part is the teaching. The first part is the witness. That's this word Caruso. Do you understand? Boy, isn't that a tremendous thing? For ye remember, brethren, our untiring effort, driving ourselves even to weariness, working night and day, because we would put no weight or responsibility on you preached unto you the gospel of God. You see, you don't put a responsibility on a little baby. Let the baby grow up. Then you say, look, John, go gather the wood or something. Mow the grass. You, know, you don't do it to a little baby. Boy, you see this whole thing just fits so beautifully when you see the greatness of the gentleness there and all of the great truths that we have set here before you. Now verse 10 corroborates it further where it says, ye are witnesses. You witnessed it. You saw our witnessing, the Caruso, and God did. That settles it. Now, three words 
how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe or who believe. The word holily is the word devoutly. It isn't a holier-than-thou thing. That isn't at all what it's here. Devoutly, I don't know any other way to explain it. I can't think of another synonym in my mind. You look the part or something. You see, you could teach the word and be silly regarding it. You understand that? This is just the, he wasn't silly with the word. He devoutly, that's what he's saying, holily, devoutly. And justly, the word justly here is righteously. And as I worked it down, it literally means with right conduct. And unblameably is that he believed and lived the word, the gospel. They carousoed the gospel of God. He just shared it. He didn't explain every little detail. He just shared the greatness of it. And they were witnesses to it. God, how that he devoutly and with right conduct believed and he lived the gospel. It burned in his soul. Behaved ourselves among you that believe. Verse 11. As ye know. <laughs> there it is again how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his what? Now look at it. Tremendous, gentle, gentle, all of that. And here we come as a father doth his children. Previously a mother nursing her child. Now the father. Again, the word exhorted here is called aside like in verse three. Ye know how we called you aside, exhorted. This was the nature of his ministry. Comforted was the element. The word comforted here is soothingly and encouragingly. That was the element. Soothing, encouraging. I sometimes think if I had to put the verses in, I'd have started verse 12 with the word and of verse 11 because here you're given the aim you see the exhorting or the calling aside is the nature of the witnessing and the holding forth of God's word the element was the soothing and the encouraging now the aim is and charged every one of you the word charged is testified to. Maturamai is the Greek word. Testified to and testified each one of you as a father does his children. As each one of you. Testified each one of you as a father does his what? Children. Does a father deal with every child? Definitely. That's this each one. It is personal, eyeball to eyeball. Sure, you can witness to a hundred people. But when you get to the accuracy of Thessalonians again, it comes 
right down to each one win one. Charged each one of you, each one, as a father doth his children. That's the aim. And here comes the teaching part. As a father deals with each child, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. As a father teaching with patience, with instruction to each one of his children, the word that in verse 12 is with a view toward. That's why a father does this with a view toward your walk, with a view toward your walk, worthy of God. This worthy walk or the walk worthy is the balanced or the right walk. It's a balanced walk. It's the balanced or the right on walk that ye would have a balanced walk or a right on walk for God. The word hath is scratched. God who called you. God who what? Called you. That brings a lot of thoughts to our mind, doesn't it? The word God calling. Called from before the foundation. All of those flip up in our minds. God called you. That's why we have this balanced walk. This is the teaching, the patience, the instruction. God called you unto his own kingdom and glory. This God called you is in the tense of a continuous calling. It's a continual calling of God to live upward, to walk upward more fruitful and more powerfully for him. That ye would walk worthy of God who called you unto his own kingdom. There again, called us into that mystery and glory. And this is just the continual calling upwards that we can live more fruitfully today than yesterday, more powerfully for him today than yesterday. You see the great teaching, the great patience, the great instruction that a father hath for his children? Just continually he's their father. And continually he will teach that son more. What for? That that son may continue to grow up and to live more beautifully, more fruitfully, be a more wonderful son, more powerfully as a son. That's exactly the truth of the church. That's how God works with his people when there are men of God who gently yet firmly but with great love and great knowledge keep ministering to God's people. 